Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Plenty of news to get to, but we are starting off the show talking about ICBC and a couple of stories to tackle today. A lot of people have been writing, tweeting, taking to social media to ask about road tests in this province. We will get to that. Joining me on the line now is Attorney General of BC, David Eby. David Eby, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, we originally wanted to, to focus on road tests, and as I mentioned, we will get to that. But there is another story I want to talk to you about as well. The Vancouver Sun has put out a story about rates, and a lot of people shelved their vehicles, parked their vehicles during the pandemic, or downgraded their insurance if they weren't going to work. And according to this story, uh, some are seeing some sticker shock now when they're bringing their vehicles out of storage. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a disappointing story because IC, ICBC identified the risk that, uh, that people who put their insurance on hold might be renewing under the new rate structure and may see an increase uh, when they go to renew. And so uh, there, there had been a communication with brokers in early June to warn them if this came up to uh, reach out to ICBC customer service, and 32 people did and had that corrected. But uh, a lot was going on during the pandemic. I certainly don't blame anyone for missing that notification, but... Uh, you know, this customer didn't have to see that. And anyone who does see this, ICBC has an automatic solution that uh, that will result in the issuing of a check to make people whole. But um, but if, if that's not their experience, they should uh, contact their broker uh, or reach out to ICBC directly and it will be fixed. And when you say it will be fixed then, so if somebody cancelled under the old policy, the old calculation, and now they're renewing, so are you saying anybody that does that, they're still going to get the same rate that they had before? That's correct. And so, and then I would imagine, so then, is that only though for if you've parked your vehicle, if you've downgraded or to, or taken the insurance off to put storage on it, if you're, if you're renewing from, from scratch, you're still going to be yeah, again you, with the new system. You can imagine some sort of fringe scenarios where someone parked their insurance, their car and said it was in storage, but then drove it around and, and got a ticket or got in an accident where their insurance would then be increased. But if you actually had your car in storage and you put it in storage, uh, and you took advantage of the cancellation without fee, and you're going to restart your insurance because your job has started again, or you need your vehicle for commuting again, uh, you should be paying the same rate that you were paying when you put the car into storage. Uh, so for the people quoted in this article, there was one uh, gentleman who said he uh, he cancelled his insurance, he saved about $240, but then when he went to bring the insurance back, it was, or he saved about 230 but it was $240 more. So what should that person do? Uh, one of two options, uh, reach out to their broker and have the broker use the, the hotline that is there for brokers to reach out to ICBC in these kinds of situations. The other is to call ICBC customer service directly and, and to deal with ICBC themselves to, to get the refund that they deserve. Uh, and is this happening then because of poor timing and that the pandemic happened at the same time we were going through these structure changes or rate changes at ICBC? Because it seems like a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, uh, the fix for people who lost their job as a result of COVID or that changed their commuting patterns directly, wanted to put their car into storage. Um, uh, we put that in place without any fees. The challenge is that the existing systems, the computer systems that are in place and ones that we're not replacing because we're moving to a new system of car insurance, uh, when you restart your insurance starts under the new rate design system. And so there are people whose renewal date might not be for many months uh, yet, and suddenly they found themselves renewing under the new uh, rate design system. So, uh, yeah, it is it is bureaucracy. Uh, it was the result of a uh, quick fix to provide relief for people during the pandemic, and the ultimate uh, impact for everyone should be that they are made whole and they are not worse off uh, because they put their vehicle into storage insurance.
Are you concerned at all that people are going to be reluctant if we're talking about people who have lost their jobs or had their hours reduced and are now getting back into some form of being back at work? Are you concerned at all there is going to be a wave of people that perhaps went down to pleasure use only and don't renew back to full coverage? Yes, uh, that's one of the uh, financial issues that ICBC faces is the projections around a couple of things. One is the number of crashes, but the other is the amount of premium dollars that people are paying are certainly not keeping pace with expectations because people are working differently. They're they're telecommuting. They're not driving in. And so they've canceled or downgraded their insurance accordingly, uh, which they were invited and encouraged to do by me and certainly by ICBC uh, to respond to the pandemic. And that has all kinds of implications down the road. But the reality is that we understand and it is a priority that people uh, not be impacted as much as possible by the pandemic or uh, changing these kinds of habits, which can be really positive for them and their families if telecommuting works for them. Uh, And so, you know, it's just the reality of the situation with the pandemic. And so in this particular situation, there have been 32 people who uh, went to renew and they uh, found it to be higher than they expected. And they called ICBC and ICBC dealt with that. Um, And for anyone else who finds themselves in this situation, they should call ICBC or their broker. And one more question on this is ICBC, obviously, the the money they're bringing in is down from from the number of people doing this. But are they not also getting a bit of a benefit with not as many cars on the road, not as many crashes? Yeah, absolutely. The, The trends are broadly positive for ICBC right now which is very good news, Uh, significantly fewer collisions, which is uh, holding on from the period where the province was basically uh, uh, voluntarily locked down. And and that's continuing to today. I think a lot of people have changed their commuting habits. Uh, What we've committed to British Columbians is at the end of the fiscal year to look at all these trends and see where ICBC is and to ensure that all of the benefit that flows from that, uh, if it's reduced collisions uh, and and that drives greater savings, uh, will flow uh, to drivers uh, one way or another in this province. Uh, I want to talk road tests as well. I'm still getting a lot of email, people taking to social media, wanting to know when non-commercial road tests are going to start up again. Yeah, so this is, um, I have some uh, news for you today uh, and good news. Um, Your listeners will remember that all testing was suspended March 17th and that resulted in a fairly significant backlog. We've got 55,000 appointments that were cancelled. Now, that's not 55,000 people. A lot of these would have been tests for uh, people who had failed uh, previously and and were redoing tests, but a significant number of tests were cancelled. And uh, we have been challenged in restarting road tests by a lack of availability of personal protective equipment. Um, June 15th, we resumed commercial testing. Uh, The the backlog is dealt with on the commercial side. Uh, And this week, uh, enough PPP enough personal protective equipment has been obtained to move to the next level of testing. So this week, uh, motorcycle testing is going to resume. Testing for recreational trailer uh, licenses will resume this week. And also uh, what are called enhanced road assessments. These are people with uh, medical issues or have been referred by law enforcement for additional testing. Um, We'll also uh, be starting this week. And also ICBC will be calling customers who had road tests canceled in March uh, to start rebooking them for full uh, driver's license testing that will be uh, starting up on July 20th. July, so July 20th will be the start date for the the road the non-commercial road test. That's right. So people will uh, start doing their uh, their non-commercial road tests uh, July 20th, and ICBC will be reaching out to those customers who had uh, canceled appointments uh, to schedule them in order uh, so that uh, people who had an appointment and it was canceled get first crack at things. Uh, and also on July 20th, ICBC is hoping to have a new online scheduling system and call center in place so that people won't have to physically go to an ICBC office in order to book these appointments, which is obviously important to minimize that 
uh, contact and, and to ensure social distance. Um, there's going to be a significant backlog, so ICBC is also working on uh, training additional driver's license examiners, as well as identifying new locations for driver's license testing. And, uh, and I guess, Jill, if there's one bottom line for people who have been waiting for their driver's license test, use this time to practice. Um, because if obviously it's going to take some time for our fixes around the backlog to really start to bite, uh, you're going to be waiting for a bit if you fail your test um, to, to get a second test booked. All right. What will the rules be? Do you know as far as uh, what people, uh, you mentioned the PPE is there for the examiners. What will the rules be for people taking the test? So the examiner and the person taking the test will both be wearing medical grade face masks. The examiner will also be wearing a face shield or eye protection, as well as gloves. Um, and, uh, and so that equipment, uh, it was particularly the medical masks uh, that were causing the delay. We've got 50,000 masks uh, that are allocated for ICBC to begin the testing. They have another shipment of masks that is in the process of being tested. Uh, we hope that the tests will all show that they're effective and, and as advertised. Uh, and if so, then we'll be uh, good to go. And you mentioned the backlog. Do you have any idea if somebody goes to book a test uh, starting July 20th, any idea how long people are going to be waiting? Um, the, the question is really um, uh, how many people uh, are facing these kinds of uh, uh, the 55,000 appointments that were cancelled gives you a bit of a ballpark. ICBC does about 20,000 uh, tests a month. Uh, fortunately for commercial testing uh, and uh, that, that backlog has been dealt with. Uh, the biggest uh, portion of these tests are obviously the non-commercial licenses that people who are uh, uh, doing their ends and getting their full license. Uh, and uh, the percentage of those, I don't have the percentage of those 55,000 that are retests or original tests, but it's safe to say that there are tens of thousands of people who have been added to the backlog, and already in some parts of the province there was a significant wait of uh, often as much as three months for a driver's license test. So uh, this is a significant backlog, and uh, ICBC recognizes that, and that's why they're uh, uh, preparing to train additional driver's license examiners uh, and also to roll out uh, additional driver's license examination locations uh, so that people can get access to that testing as quickly as possible. Let's talk about getting people to wear face masks. We've heard it again and again. It is highly recommended, especially if you are in a place where you can't physically distance from people, from strangers, say you're at a store, getting your groceries, on transit. TransLink has done their whole wearing is caring campaign. Although I've been taking transit and I do not see a whole lot of people wearing face masks. Well, what about treating it like sex educators have been treating their information for years. That's why we wanted to talk to Maureen McGrath, host of the Sunday Night Health Show here on CKNW. And Maureen joins us on the line now. Hello to you. Good afternoon, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about yourself? I'm fine, thank you, as I sit here in my office with my mask, <laughs> ready to wear if I, once I see another patient. <laughs> of, of course. Well, I, I'm shocked we didn't think of this sooner because trying to get buy-in and people to voluntarily wear masks, sex educators have been going through this for decades, if not longer, trying to erase stigma that might be attached to something that people are doing for the health of others. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't have great compliance even in teaching people to use barrier 
protection in order to practice safe sex. Um, nonetheless, it's still important that we keep up the fight and educate patients. And so, you know, provide them with real education. So, for example, you know, wearing a condom or likening that to wearing a mask, neither one, you know, make for a pleasurable experience, quite honestly. And, and so to let people know that and understand that, that it's not always the easiest thing, but it ultimately will protect you and or others, you know, makes for a great case. And does it really come down to as well, it's, it's, it's the consequences, isn't it, that if you don't do this, you could get any number, when we're talking about sexually transmitted infections, you could get any number of infections, and, and it's all about keeping other people protected, keeping yourself protected. Why is it, do you think, we get more buy-in uh, in some areas less and less in other areas? Well, there's a little bit of um, human nature plays a role here, and people think it's not going to happen to me. I'm not going to get a sexually transmitted infection. I'm not going to contract COVID-19. There are false messages out there that it's limited only to people over the age of 80, but that's not true. We see that younger people, on average, are getting uh, COVID-19 now as well, and that's because they're congregating at bars and, and in restaurants in some areas. So we, we must make sure that the, the messaging that we put out there is consistent and that people are educated around this. I find when people understand the risks and understand the benefits as well, um, that they may be far more compliant. And as time has gone on with COVID-19, we are learning a whole lot more, and that applies to masks as well. Is it also the availability? And I think back to campaigns where people would go to nightclubs or bars and hand out condoms and there was the education campaign. Is it, is it, do you think there's a similarity as well in that if people will wear masks if they're more available, much like people might use condoms or use birth control if it's ready, available, and I suppose even free? Absolutely. I believe they should be accessible. To be honest with you, people will forget them. You know, as we as the lockdown is loosened and our lives become busy again, you know, we forget that, you know, our one great task is to wear a mask. And so we may not carry them in our cars or may not have them in our handbags. That's always a great idea to do. But, you know, I just went into a, um, a local store and there were about seven people in there. I was the only one with a mask. And then I went to a takeout restaurant and I was the only one once again with a mask and there were about 10 people in inside there as well. They were physically distancing, but they weren't at the ready to have their mask. And so I think it's important that masks are made available for people, whether they are reusable ones, cloth ones, a face covering um, to remind people and then to, you know, because a lot of people want to do good. That's human nature. And so if the mask is there, it serves as a reminder and they can pop it on. And what about the issue as well? And again, there's overlap with what you teach also that it has to be used correctly. It certainly does have to be used correctly, but even when it's not used correctly, we're finding from research, there's actually a very interesting study out of the UK, and it was a modeling framework to assess the likely effectiveness of face masks in combination with lockdown and managing COVID-19 pandemic. And that found that even because one of the negatives about face masks, especially early on, the messaging was if you touch it, then it's less effective and you're more likely to contract the virus. However, we're finding from this particular study that that's not the case. So even when masks were used in uh, people who were asymptomatic versus those who were symptomatic, when there was lockdown, when there wasn't lockdown, the masks served as, um, you know, they, they were able to actually mitigate disease. And so face mask use 
uh, by the public is very important because it does have population level benefits. And so this study was also very interesting because they actually had hairdressers, two hairdressers who saw 140 patients. Now, those hairdressers were tested positive for coronavirus, and they saw between them 140 clients and nobody contracted the disease because the hairdressers were wearing face masks. So it's really important. But unfortunately, this issue has been politicized, as you know. And we know shaming people doesn't help them or doesn't get mask wearing up more. Is it is it visibly seeing, do you think, if you walk, like you said, you were at a couple of places, nobody was wearing them. I've been in situations like that uh, where we're being really being advised to wear them and not seeing much compliance. What is it? Is it if, if people suddenly start seeing everybody wearing them, do you think that could get more buy in? I think that would be very helpful. I, you know, it's not easy to wear a mask. I, I will say that. I wear it in my clinical practice. I wear glasses. They fog up. Um, there are times when I can, you know, take it off. And so, but, it, but all the patients are required to wear a mask. And if they don't have one, we give it to them. And so it just becomes the norm. And I think shaming never works with anything, uh, no matter what you are wanting people to do. But I do think appropriate, accurate, up-to-date education is very important. The other thing that masks can do, according to of this study is to help prevent if we want to get the economy going again they can actually help to prevent a second wave and keep that curve flattened so we're learning more and more and as more research is done we'll be able to actually convey this information to the public so that everybody's interest is considered and we get the economy going and we get to actually live alongside this virus more healthily until we have a vaccine or another therapeutic that becomes available are you seeing people in your practice that are reluctant? Like you said, you'll give them out to people or make sure that it is mandatory because we're, we've seen that video. I don't know if you've seen it going viral of a woman in Toronto or in Ontario uh, outraged that she's at a hospital for a broken finger and they're telling her that it's policy to wear a mask. I, I find it I find it mind boggling that in a medical setting, people are, are reluctant or refusing to wear that. Are you seeing that? We are seeing that. You know, I would probably say about 10% of the patients um, have not come in with a mask and then they have, you know, balked a little bit at wearing the mask and then they start talking about their opinion with the mask in place and they will just start saying, you know, how this is so ridiculous and we shouldn't be wearing a mask and, you know, people don't like to be told what to do. But people do accept uh, receiving appropriate education and information that is accurate, uh, that w- is to the benefit of themselves and to others as well. Nobody wants to harm anybody else, and they certainly don't want to harm themselves. And sometimes these patients are in higher risk categories, so they may have respiratory disease or they may have obesity. So they may have some comorbidities that if they got COVID-19, they would be a lot sicker and at greater risk of ending up on a ventilator or even of death. Mm. Uh, did you ever think you'd be using all of your expect- uh, expertise and uh, now educating people when it uh, comes to a global pandemic? No, and I'm also educating because a lot of people have been in lockdown, and so lockdown, you know, love has been locked down as well, and so now they're getting out again, and, you know, this disease can be transmitted through kissing, and so, you know, the recommendation and, you know, some guidelines are wear masks during lovemaking, so um, I'm actually finding that I'm educating a lot of people who are wanting to get out on the dating scene, how do they do that safely and appropriately, so you know, it's, it's many ways of education. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to have you back on the show and uh, d- discuss that one even more. Uh, Maureen, on that note, though, we're out of time. We'll talk to you again. Thank you so much for doing this. 
You're very welcome. Thank you, Jill. That is Maureen McGrath, host of the Sunday Night Health Show right here on CKNW. You can catch uh, Maureen Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. We'll take a short break. Stick with us here on CKNW. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, there are some new concerns about exactly how the coronavirus spreads and if it could actually be airborne. That is a question being raised by some scientists who have brought it up with the World Health Organization. Let's bring in Jason Tetro once again. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show and he is on the line with us now. Jason, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Hey, great to be joining you. I think this is, a bit, I mean, it is concerning to people and hearing this because we've been told all along that if you keep that distance, the virus comes out as droplets, those droplets fall to the ground and you don't have to worry about it being airborne. So what do you take from what these scientists are saying? Well, all of that is absolutely true. Here's the one thing that's become um, sort of the, the crux of all of this debate. When you talk about a room four walls, you either have good ventilation, whether you have open windows or you have an HVAC system or something, or you don't have a lot of good ventilation. And if you don't have a lot of good ventilation, what happens is that you get um, essentially viruses and even bacteria lingering in the air that could possibly be inhaled. Now, is there going to be enough over a period of time where there's no ventilation and people are together that it's going to increase the concentration so that you can get infected by the air, in other words, it being airborne, or is it essentially that there's going to be droplets and those are going to fall to the ground and you have nothing to worry about? Well, in hospitals where we know that this has happened, when you don't have that ventilation or the ventilation is going in one direction, it will essentially bring that virus along and possibly infect other people. But how many of us have ever been in a room where it's essentially four walls with absolutely no ventilation and no exchanges of air? <laughs> Hopefully not too many. No. I mean, I mean, I mean, studios possibly, which is one of the reasons why maybe, you know, we should wear a mask while we're doing interviews in the studio. But other than that, you, you, you have to think about it and say, okay, well, the best thing for us to do is to make sure that we have some kind of ventilation. And it says so in the letter itself. The problem is, is that that which is known to be um, a, a, an impactive factor in how a virus or a bacterium spreads seems to be, have been missed by a lot of these researchers and scientists who are talking about it. Because at the end of the day, the more ventilation you have, the, the less the likelihood that anything in the air is going to get into you. Right, because we're not talking about a virus that is is an airborne virus like some others are. We're talking about, again, the droplets getting some kind of help to stay in the air. Exactly. And I think that's really where the, the difference lies is when we talk about measles, which is truly an airborne virus, it, it's just in the air. And it just likes hanging out because it's kind of like dust. Dust is in the air, measles is in the air. But in order for um, coronavirus, the COVID, to be able to survive, it does have to have some liquid around it. And as a result of that, there is going to be some kind of gravity. And again, when you have ventilation, any kind of water droplets that are um, you know, incredibly tiny are going to move along that, that flow. But if they happen to be heavy enough, they'll just come right out. So really, that's the thing, is if you happen to be in an environment with other people and you don't know what their status is, make sure there's some ventilation.
Hmm. Exactly. This is, when I read this story too, it made me think of throughout this pandemic, and I was talking to somebody else about it as well. Is in my in my brain, if I'm even if I'm outside and I'm walking and I'm wearing a mask, if I get in a situation where I smell someone's perfume or cologne, mm-hmm. it freaks me out a little bit because I think, well, if I can smell your perfume or cologne and it's making it over and it's in my nose, then how do I know that that if you were infected, that I that I didn't just get too close to you? But I imagine that's also the difference between something that's air. Born. Yeah, uh, and the other thing you have to realize is that the uh, the chemicals that are creating that scent uh, essentially can just travel in the air. They don't need to have water around them, right? So that's one of the reasons why um, you know perfumes and, and other uh, odiferous chemicals can really spread about and go distances well, well beyond what would happen with uh, aerosols or droplets. Uh, all you have to do is, you know, how, how many of us have driven by a farm, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and so when you think of it from that perspective, you're dealing with individual chemicals that are hitting your olfactory bulb, which is then giving you a sensation. When we're talking about a virus, we are talking about something that actually is very heavy in comparison to just a simple chemical. And again, it has to have that water around it. And so when you think about um, the dispersal of those water droplets, that's the big thing that you need to be focused on. And I think that's one of the problems that we seem to be facing at the moment with these debates is they're forgetting the gravity that comes with water and also with the virus itself. And they're too focused on things just lingering in the air, like a perfume or you know, the, the smell from a farm. Do we tend to use the word droplet too, too much to describe everything in that not all droplets are obviously the same size? Well... See, the thing is droplet, aerosol, uh, droplet nuclei, airborne, those are all definitions that are dependent on particular sizes. And so when we start using these terms, um, you know, from a scientific perspective, if you say droplet, uh, I'm looking at something that has a certain size to it, and therefore I know it's got gravity, and within 30 to 45 seconds it's going to fall to the ground. If we're talking about aerosol, it's going to be very small in comparison to that, and it's going to have a longer time in the air. But we can't really do that interchangeably droplet and aerosol and airborne but the fact is is um, you know without being pedantic people are just going to do that can you get it if you were wearing a mask you've or we've covered our noses and our mouths can it I mean we we've also talked about not touching our faces could Mm -hmm. it if you got a droplet in your eye can you get it that way well Because the receptor for the virus, the ACE2, uh, happens to be in many parts of the body, including the eye, there is a possibility that the eye can be a route for infection. Um, I have yet to see a large number of cases in that sense, but it has gotten um, enough attention that face masks are not just enough when it comes to healthcare facilities that people are using face shields to be able to protect themselves. And remember, we also saw that with Ebola in the past. So this is something that's been thought about and and, and sort of just being brought up to date to, to deal with coronavirus. We are continuing now with Jason Testro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and he has agreed to stay with us till the top of the hour to take your calls if you have any COVID-19 questions. Jason is here to answer those. Let's go straight to the phone lines. We'll try and get everybody in on the call. Let's go to Lorraine. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Yes, um, a question for Jason. I I was recently speaking with a nurse who works in a local hospital, asking her about the mask thing, and she said she wears her N95 at work, but doesn't wear any mask because she has to go to the store or something, because she said, um, like, we're exiting 
water vapor into these uh, non-medical pleated masks, and she she thinks that the moisture in the mask is can draw in um, the virus. I guess if you're within six feet or whatever, I don't know, but um, yeah, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. Yeah, I wonder that, what your thoughts are on that. That that's a that's an amazing question. Thank you for asking that. Yes, yeah. indeed. When we talk about masks, the reason you have a protective or that you're protected is because there are layers, um, and and just like a pillow, if you get a pillow wet everything kind of sinks down and you lose the ability to have that um, those layers to sort of trap in the particles. So if you have a mask that is eventually getting wet as a result of the vapor that's coming out of your mouth, absolutely. Now here's where the tricky part is. Depending on the type of mask, they've already looked at that in terms of how long the mask can be used. And the majority of the ones that are um, medical, non-medical, N95s, those have been looked at for hours and hours and hours. The ones that are homemade haven't been looked at in terms of their efficiency when it comes to being wet. But the easiest way for you to sort of assume uh, what what is going to work and what's not going to work is when you hold it in your hands and you kind of scrunch it afterwards, if it has um, that wet or damp feeling, then it probably hasn't been giving you enough and you'll have to use it for less time. It's also one of the reasons why it's really good to have a couple of these masks handy. Um, and, you know, the way that they're being made right now and, and with the designs and everything, it's just a perfect time to, uh, you know, show your own fashion choice. All right, Lorraine, thanks for the question. Appreciate that. Let's go to Sean on the open line. What are your, what's your question? Hi there. Hi. Um, so my question, I'll, I'll just give you a scenario that I was a little bit concerned about. I was in a supermarket at the deli counter, mm-hmm. and I had some meat, uh, some cold cuts being sliced, and no one was wearing a mask. And the young girl who was uh, slicing up my meat was having a conversation with a colleague at the other end of the, of the uh, deli area. So she was talking loudly and I could almost in my mind's eye, she spit coming from her mouth while she's cutting my meat. And I was really kind of freaked out by that. And I said, you know, I'm not, you're not going to wear a mask and you're, you're, you're speaking like that over my meat. I'm just, I'm not going to take it. Um, and I was wondering what are the risks? Because I, I understand that it's not foodborne, but um, in a case like that, where there's actually, if, if there was spit directly on the food, is there a risk? Was I justified in being upset about that? Well, first off, it's bad uh, food safety practice, for one. Uh, forget about COVID. I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> gross anytime. In our meat, <laughs> seriously. But. When it comes to the actual COVID itself, if, you have, if that person was six feet away um, and they were spurting around droplets and stuff like that, they would have fallen to the ground far enough from the meat. That being said, the fact is we are trying to protect people. We're trying to develop some kind of understanding amongst the grander community that we want to be protecting others, even if we do come up negative, even if we don't have illness or signs or symptoms. So the idea of her being there in a workplace where she's just yapping about and spitting everywhere does not give you confidence in the uh, in the person, but also possibly the store. So this is where you may actually want to seek out a manager and simply say, hey, look, you know, we are living in a special time. Maybe it would be good for these people to be wearing masks. All right. Let's uh, move on to Ken on the line. What's your question? Hi, I'd like to ask the doctor a look at the overall picture here. Um, going on the, the 
developing science about the airborne uh, travel of this virus and the masks coming into this the play late in the game. Do you think, I have the feeling, my opinion, that the overall, in the densely populated areas of the world, even including Canada, of course, have we, do you, what's your opinion? Do you think that most of the people in the world have been infected already just because oh. of that multiplication factor? There's a possibility. It's not to say people should give up their guard, mm-hmm. but that just tells me that multiplication factor of how this thing could possibly travel than this six meters we've been um, going by earlier. That is a massive change in math. Thank you. Yeah. Um, first off, not a doctor, researcher, but thank you very much. Um, the other thing is that when you start talking about how um, the, the, the spread occurs, believe me, the science hasn't changed. It's the exact same science that we were looking at back in the 1980s with measles and the 1990s with HIV, with bloodborne, et cetera, et cetera. So none of that has really changed. What's changed is our perspective when it comes to this virus, because what we found was that it was causing a higher level of severe infections with people needing hospitalization and possibly intensive care. So that's one of the reasons why we've sort of gone towards more, uh, you know, more mask adoption and this type of thing. Now, in terms of the amount of people, well, we got 7.7 billion people. And if you look at the cases, we've got a couple million confirmed cases. And even if we look at it from, you know, a 10 times that, which is what some people have estimated, that's still only tens of millions of people out of billions. So we'd be lucky if we have maybe 1% to 2% of the population infected through this wave. And we see the same thing, by the way, with the pandemic flu from 2009. Not everybody's been con- uh, infected by it, and believe it or not, it still circulates to this day. So it can take many years, if not generations, for it to hit absolutely everybody. All right, and we have another question. We have Susan on the line. Susan, go ahead. Yes, hello. Um, I was wondering whether the virus can live on money, and how do you wash a homemade uh, mask? Thank you very much. Sure. So um, if it happens to be a non-porous solid surface, which Canadian money happens to be, then yes, there's a good likelihood it's going to survive. Now, how long it's going to survive? Probably no more than about a day or so. Uh, And so the fact that You know, if you happen to be playing around with money, the best thing for you to do is to use hand sanitizer in between exchanges, and you should be good. Um, We won't get into money laundering, but we will get into mask laundering. And for that, all you need to do is make sure that you're using uh, warm, soapy water so that you're infusing the mask with that water, and the soap is going to get in there to be able to kill the virus. Then what you're going to do is you're going to give it a good rinse, and then you're going to dry it. If you can put it in a dryer, that's even better, but you can probably just hang it to dry. And remember, sunlight really is one of the best disinfectants out there. All right, uh, good question. So I put mine in the washer and the dryer. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, perfect. Okay, excellent. Um, What are your thoughts? We just have about a minute left. Uh, Your thoughts on travel, because we do often get a lot of questions, especially now with the planes uh, that are going to be Mm -hmm. putting people in every seat. What are your thoughts on that? Well, nothing has really changed in the way I I look at it because I've been traveling so much and I've been having to deal with infections from all sorts of different types of viruses. Basically, I use barrier protection. We talked about it many times in the past. I used the scarf or the neck tube back then. 
we're starting to see masks become more popular and more accepted. So masks are going to be a great way. But really, when it comes to people you don't know, which happens to be the majority of the plane, I'm sure, if you don't understand or know what their infection status happens to be, the best thing for you to do is to use barrier protection. All right, Jason, thank you so much. Always good to have you on the program. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Take care. Well, you don't often hear about a peacock attack, but that is something that happened in Victoria. That led to the eviction of a peacock from an apartment entrance. And Ian Fraser is Victoria's senior animal control officer, and he has graciously agreed to come on the show to talk a little bit more about this. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. How about you? Good, thanks. Is this uh, rare that we have a peacock? Yeah, Yeah, it's very unusual. It's very rare. It's uh, this kind of thing uh, really doesn't happen. (laughs) So what happened here? Well, um, I guess just before Canada Day, uh, well, um, I think it's been happening actually for for a little while. We were receiving a number of phone calls about it from the residents of the building down on Douglas Street opposite Beacon Hill Park. Um, A male peacock had... uh, Basically, taking up residence in the uh, in the entranceway to this uh, apartment building. There's some glass doors there, and the peacock could see his reflection. And I think uh, he thought it was another male, and so he thought he, you know, the peacocks are territorial, and I think he thought he needed to defend his territory from this other male. And uh, there were three peahens that followed him across the street to the. Uh, to the building entrance and uh so that's that's sort of the the scenario that that began and then uh, things started uh getting out of control so not the smartest peacock to not realize that he was looking at his own reflection when you say things got out of control i know there was an attack on a resident what happened there yeah there's uh, there's quite a number of uh, seniors that live in that building and uh and a lot of people have been passing by without without incident coming and going from the building but uh, for whatever reason, just before Canada Day, uh, the, the peacock took offense to, uh, to one of the uh, elderly uh, residents and, uh, and actually jumped up and attacked her and put a sizable gash on the back of her hand, about an inch and a half, two inches, and uh, knocked her while well, she fell over in the melee, I think, in the, in the, in the surprise of it all and uh, got lots of bumps and bruises and abrasions. And uh, fortunately, she didn't break anything. She landed on the hard uh, concrete pavement there. But uh, so um, we had to act. We couldn't let that peacock, uh, you know, continue its uh, activities. So uh, we had to go down there and round him up and uh, take him away. And how did that go? Is it uh, you've got the, the what, whatever you need to round up a, a peacock? Well, we tried a few things, and uh, the first couple of rounds, the, the peacock won. He was able to elude us and take refuge uh, into a tree and uh, high above on some rooftops. And uh, we persisted, went back there with the trap and set it up. And uh, he uh, came around the trap and was quite interested, but didn't wouldn't go inside. And then he just went for a walk down the street and... Uh, so I just followed him, and uh, when the time was right, I was able to uh, grab a hold of some tail feathers and hold on. So uh, yeah, he was uh, caught the first time, and we put a band on his leg, and we transported him to the opposite side of the park. And fingers crossed, we hoped that he didn't, uh, he wouldn't return to the uh, to that same location. And but, how confident uh, are you then? He won't that he won't go back there. Well, we were we were hoping the first time, and we let him go, and with a band on his leg. And about 11 hours later, he was back uh, at the part at the apartment building, 3:30 in the morning, and calling to the 
to the peahens and uh, making quite a ruckus. So uh, we went back a second time on, uh, I guess it was Friday afternoon, and we were able to round him up again. And this time we've removed him, and uh, he's uh, been in. He's put in. He's been put into uh, sort of solitary uh, confinement. He's got his own bachelor pad without any uh, without any uh, visitors. So that's where he's at right now. And then is the goal to release him again after the mating season or at some other time? That's right. Yeah, we're going to hold him there. Uh, and uh, when things sort of settle down and we think he can uh, be released and not create any more issues, we'll, uh, we'll, we will release him. All right. Uh, you mentioned you were able to kind of wrestle him the first time by grabbing his tail feathers. Have you ever had to wrestle a peacock like that before? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> so not happen com- very often, but uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. Rare but not unheard of. Yes, all right. Well, quite the story out of Victoria, and I'm glad the the woman is okay. Uh, you said that she fell over a bit banged up, but hopefully uh, we'll have, make a full recovery, and uh, hopefully he enjoys his couple weeks in his bachelor pad, and, and it all works out okay. I don't think he's enjoying it very much, but uh, the, the other alternative is uh, not so good for him. Right. He'd probably enjoy that a whole lot less. Yeah. All right. Well, I know it's a busy for times for you in Victoria. Ian, thank you so much for uh, taking some time with us today and sharing this rather unusual story. You're very welcome.